This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk B-Balls with the storage janitor himself, Andy Banta of NetApp SolidFire. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. Sitting on Skype with me today is Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Sizemore. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. Hello, guys. All right. We have a special guest today uh, from Solid Fire to talk about Vivals. What do you mean special? Um, well, I mean special in that the way your mother calls you special. Isn't that special? <laughs> yes, that is church lady all right um so our resident church lady slash storage janitor andy banta is here to talk about vivals hi andy hi how are things good welcome back to the podcast thanks it's been a while it has been a while um finally you've done something worth talking about so yeah there, there's that now that you've done that um let's let's yeah. talk about it so uh let's let's Hopefully they talk about the stuff i do at arraignments at arra- <laughs> yeah you, you do have kind of a record um, and that's part of the reason why you probably haven't been on because you've been locked up for a little while. Yeah, a little. It's interesting to me to watch and and just see how long this goes. <laughs> I actually have have brought in a new sound effect for for the times we get into this state to kind of bring us back on the rails here. And and here it is. So anytime we get off the rails, we'll play that sound effect when we got to get back uh, on track. Oh, that's a fun bridge. Yeah, you're go- yeah. You're just going to wrap the van around the telephone pole and, and, and reset, do it again? Okay. Sometimes that's the only way to understand. All right. Yep. All right. So, Vivals, Andy, tell us about this uh, exciting new announcement with Solidfire. I guess, is it fluorine? Uh, yeah, fluorine. Whenever fluorine's coming out. Um, it's uh, so... I don't know how familiar your uh, listeners are with, with Vivals. Uh, Vivals is actually a, a way of changing the way that you actually manage um, your storage and attempting to introduce some storage efficiencies. It gets rid of the idea that you actually have a file system that VMware maintains on a system. Uh, traditionally, VMware would go out, take a, a disk or a LUN, uh, lay out a file system on it, and then start using that to store uh, VMs, and you typically have uh, a few VMs, uh, maybe up to 20 or 30 on one VMFS file system. Um, Vivals actually breaks that idea and allows ESX, the VMware, to specifically ask the storage to create individual files for VMs. So uh, instead of uh, VMware going out and writing stuff to its own file system, uh, it uses an out-of-band path to um, to ask the storage to create a VVOL, a virtual volume, that would be like the config file for a VM or the data disk for a VM, or uh, you know, it's uh, if the VM is running, it'll create a swap file for it. So the whole idea is that uh, VMware now is asking the storage to create individual objects uh, on, on the um, storage to represent a VM rather than VMware creating it in a file system. This is cool because it allows the storage system to actually be able to understand these things as pieces of a VM. Um, SolidFire really takes advantage of this by saying, okay, we have these 
individual disks that belong to a VM, we can apply our guaranteed QoS at the virtual volume level, at the virtual disk layer for a VM, rather than having to apply it to an entire file system and letting all the VMs that are in that file system fight over that QO, those QoS capabilities. It ends up being a little bit more efficient. It ends up being a lot more efficient in some cases uh, because you don't actually have to allocate space on the storage system when you create LUN. Um, you, you actually just allocate space as you create the individual VVOLs. Uh, it also saves a bunch of, uh, of your SAN bandwidth because you're no longer having VMware do all the reads and writes and copies and all the, the regular stuff that you would need to, to create a VM or to copy a VM or to create a virtual disk. Um, you, you end up using a lot less SAN bandwidth. So uh, those are just a couple of the, the main advantages of, uh, of virtual volumes. SolidFire builds itself as a, um, a storage system for storage consumers, not for storage admins. So we typically want to go out and uh, put SolidFire in the hands of people who don't aren't interested in all the, the knobs and tweaks and crap that you actually get with, with most storage systems. Uh, and VVOLS actually carries this one step farther where you once you've actually installed your SolidFire system and uh, flip the switch that says I want VVOLS on it, the storage admin never need you, you never need to touch the SolidFire storage UI again. Uh, you can go in and uh, um, create data stores from your vSphere plugin. You can go create VMs. You can go do whatever you need from your vSphere client without ever touching the SolidFire UI again. So that's where we actually see a big manageability improvement with uh, VVOLS. So Andy, I'm, I'm sure you're aware ONTAP has a, a VVOLS implementation, right, which leverages uh, the, the abstraction of FlexVOLS and puts those into the, the VVOL container, right, what is analogous to a, a data store. So yep. can you can you kind of walk through what the the SolidFire implementation of the different uh, VVOLS components is? So the VASA yeah. provider, I know there's some pretty significant differences there and how protocol endpoints, or I guess what are protocol endpoints and how they're implemented inside of the, the SolidFire side? Right. So uh, sure, I can walk through that. Uh, I guess I actually need to back up just a step and, and just give a quick description of SolidFire again. I, I gave a pretty good description way back six months ago, but nobody's going to remember that. Uh, where SolidFire is actually a scale-out system where we, you, you take individual nodes, anywhere from four to 100 nodes, and you assemble them into a, a scale-out system. You typically need to start with four nodes, and you can just keep adding nodes as you need them for scale-out capabilities. Uh, by adding nodes, you're both increasing your capacity and you're increasing your throughput, and it's, it's a completely linear increase. Each time you add a node, you get an incremental step up in capacity and you get an incremental step up and throughput. So uh, let's break down a couple of things that you end up with uh, with with VVOLS. Um, first off, storage containers. Uh, a storage container with VVOLS is the way that you represent a data store now. Um, instead of a data store being a VMFS volume or a VMFS file system, a data store is now a thing that you define on the storage system called a storage container. Uh, for SolidFire, uh, we didn't really the solid fire, the storage container doesn't really mean anything to solid fire. Um, it's uh, it's just essentially a tag that gets associated with the VVOLs. Uh, since solid fire typically sells into multi-tenant um, vendor or multi-tenant accounts, um, what we actually did was we tied the storage container to an account 
on the solid fire uh, cluster. So um, you can have one or more storage containers associated with an account, and often in, in multi-tenant environments, the accounts are divvied out to the individual customers of that environment. So you know you could have like your finance department could have two storage containers, and your uh, development environment could have three storage containers. Or if you're a cloud provider, you could have you know you could have one you could have your Coke and Pepsi accounts associated with storage containers. So a storage container for us is just a tag. Um, we didn't feel any need to, to taint any of our uh, layout at all. So it's the storage container actually occupies the entire space available or is has the entire space available on the cluster. Uh, you Anytime you, you add more nodes to the cluster, you'll see your storage container will go up in size. And actually, it's a little bit deceptive when you look at it through the VMware interface because I think the VMware interface kind of expected that storage containers were going to be fixed size, and uh, SolidFire doesn't treat them that, that way at all. The, the storage container is the entire capacity of the cluster, and you, when you look at it, you'll see a bunch of different storage containers that all have the same size and are all the, the entire size of the cluster. That's how we actually scale out the, the capacity portion of it. Anytime you add more nodes, it automatically comes up with a, uh, additional space. The next piece of it is... Uh, protocol endpoints. So again, we have nodes. We have a, a node system, a clustered system. So we we have at least one protocol endpoint on each node. Um, for for the current release, it's looking like we probably won't need more than one uh, protocol endpoint per node. That might actually be something that needs to change if we go to to higher throughput interfaces on our our nodes. But for right now, you have one protocol endpoint on each node. Your throughput scales the same way. Each time you add another node, you'll add another protocol endpoint. Uh, VMware vSphere will discover the new protocol endpoint. Uh, if we need to do any shuffling on the backside, it won't have anything to do with, uh, you know, the, the VMware administrator won't have to do anything about it. We, we might actually, as you add new nodes, we'll typically shuffle loads out and we'll uh, redirect the SX to use the, the proper protocol endpoint to get to that virtual volume. We also we manage the protocol endpoints ourselves. As soon as you turn on VVOLs, the protocol endpoints get created. There's absolutely no administrator intervention that needs to be done. Uh, pretty much the only thing you need to do is you throw the switch on VVOLs. Uh, our cluster will give you a URL that you need to paste into vCenter that makes you, that does, allows you to do the VASA provider connection uh, to it and you're ready to go. Is there actually a, you know, is there an IP address associated with the protocol endpoint or are you just using the, the, the iSCSI target that's already there? Uh, so, so we're, we're actually creating new protocol endpoints. Um, each protocol endpoint will have its own IP address. Um, but it's, we use the same mechanism that we use for our normal targets where we're going to tell ESX that there's, however many protocol endpoints and they're all at the same address. And um, then as the iSCSI login requests come in, we will redirect those logins to the individual nodes. Gotcha. And it, it, that is actually something that's really important to point out is that, um, that we're doing iSCSI only. We're not actually doing any legacy uh, protocols on this. And uh, we figure that the rest of NetApp has enough NFS cover that we don't actually need to be looking at that. Very cool. Uh, oh. Um, so actually, let me get into the VASA provider a little bit. Um, the VASA provider 
uh, we don't actually have a separate VM that runs as the Fossil Provider. The Fossil Provider runs as part of the master service on each one of our nodes. So it, it, our nodes have a bunch of different services running. We have a thing called the master service that does things like, uh, you know, handle database updates and uh, API requests and that type of thing. Um, anyway, we have a master service running on each node. Um, the nodes, through some an election mechanism, choose a cluster master, and the cluster master is the one that actually answers all the requests from ESX. So that's where the iSCSI logins are going to come into. That's where API requests are going to come into. Um, and that's actually where the VASA provider is going to live as well. It's going to be part of the master service. So that means that we get our uh, resiliency the same way that, um, that any other service on our system gets it, where if the cluster master goes down, the other nodes are supposed to figure this out fairly quickly and elect a new cluster master and get it up and running as the cluster master. And that typically happens within a handful of seconds. So we end up with our resiliency that way. We've implemented the, the, all of the required VASA2 calls that are needed for VVOLs. What we really like to talk about with VVOLs is the way that everything is uh, everything is policy-driven for the way that you use VVOLs. So, uh, an awful lot of people talk about VVOLs, and if you don't actually tie VVOLs to uh, VMware's storage policy-based management, uh, you you lose an awful lot of the benefits of it. The whole idea with VVOLs is that you can set up policies through the um, the vSphere administration, and then you're supposed to set up capabilities on the storage side that, that will potentially match those uh, those policies. And part of what VASA, the VASA provider does is there's a compliance check between the policies and the capabilities. And uh, when VMs are compliant, they'll get marked that way in vSphere. Uh, what we actually use the, the policies for is the ability to set the min IOPS, the max IOPS, and the burst IOPS for each VVOL that's there. And uh, through the VASA provider, we actually get the requests that come in. So if somebody changes the QoS settings, uh, the QoS policies for a VM or for an individual uh, virtual disk that re is represented as a VPO, we'll get the compliance check that comes down through our VASA provider, and we are going to automatically change the QoS settings on that VVOL when we get it. And this requires no data movement. This is simply changing the QoS settings on that virtual volume, and we will report back to VMware that it's compliant immediately. So this means that you can have vSphere administrators sit there and play with the QoS settings all day through their vSphere uh, client, and we will adjust our QoS settings to match whatever the vSphere administrator sets, and we will guarantee those QoS settings. And this, as I said, is done with no data movement. So we don't have tiering of storage on our side. Uh, we, we just adjust the QoS on the individual volume as we get it. And this is what we think is the the really cool feature, the, the thing that is actually going to make uh, SolidFire a differentiator. It's, um, we don't know of any other vendors that are out there that have the capability to allow the vSphere administrator to do those settings in the policies, have it automatically reflected on the array, and not have to touch anything, not have to touch any storage UI whatsoever to make it happen. Yeah, that's really cool, man. That's uh, it's 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 it makes sense though. I mean, you know that that that's the promise of evolves. The, the the whole point of this infrastructure is to seamlessly pass uh, the the storage capabilities directly up to the virtualization administrator, right? So yep. so whatever it is that your storage product does that's special, 
expose that via VVOLs and give it directly to, to, to the VM admins. What more would you like to know about VVOLs? Yeah, so in VVOLs, and I'm remembering back to uh, to the ONTAP side when I was uh, more involved with the VVOL stuff there, and I, there's several different types of VVOL objects, right? So there's, I think, what they call the the home directory or or sort of the, uh, the config, uh, properties right? object. Okay, yeah, config, config object. Yeah, yeah, so, and then, so okay. can you can you kind of describe the different objects, and then you know each one of those is represented as a as a different volume on the solid fire side, correct? Yep, that's that's correct. So, um, so there's the, VMware has defined five different types of VVOLs. I don't even know why we talk about the fifth one. It, it's called other, so we'll we'll just dismiss it at this point. So there's the config VVOL. This would be basically the home directory for the VVOLs. Uh, it's actually a little tiny VMFS file system that lives in four gig. Uh, it has things like the VMX file, which is your configuration file for the VM. Uh, it has all your log files. It has the NVRAM stuff. It has it has housekeeping things that you would typically find if you went in and uh, browsed the directory that you find your VM in, um, either through the command line or, or through the um, data store browser. Uh, there's the data VVOLs. And the data VVOLs are your, uh, going to be virtual disks. So if you have a VM that has a couple of virtual disks, uh, you'll have one V. You'll have one data VVOL for each one of those. Uh, data VVOLs are also going to be the way that you represent uh, snapshots. So if you snapshot a VVOL, um, you're going to end up with another data VVOL that will be the the snapshot associated with that VVOL. Um, so if you snapshot an entire VM, you'll end up with uh, as many data VVOLs, their snapshots as you had virtual disks data, as, as you had data VVOLs that were virtual disks on your virtual machine. Uh, there's, uh, there's a swap VVOL. So this gets created anytime that you power on a VM. This is what DSX is going to use um, to swap the memory into if the ESX host is memory overcommitted. Um, so Typically, anytime you create a VM, I, I, I'm not sure everybody knows this, but anytime you create a VM, you, you actually want to give the VM more memory than that operating that guest operating system is ever going to need. Um, you don't want the guest operating system doing the swapping. That turns in that means that you actually end up swapping onto your data revolve rather than ESX doing its swapping and pushing stuff out to your swap people. Uh, the last type of VVOL that's mentioned uh, that exists is uh, called a, a MEM VVOL, and this is actually going to be a memory snapshot. So if you suspend the VM, it's going to create a memory VVOL, or if you take a snapshot of, uh, if you take a memory consistent snapshot of a running VM, you're going to get a MEM VVOL. So MEM VVOLs are, are the types of things where um, they will only ever be written once, and they will be read at most once. Um, the, sw the swap VVOLs are actually things that could be pounded on a little bit. It's if you if you do have a memory over provisioned uh, ESX host, you actually could be using the swap VVOLs quite a bit. Uh, VMware doesn't really offer a way to change the QoS on uh, on swap VVOLs at this point. Um, so what VM what SolidFire has done is that we've actually set it with a very low minimum. Um, we do this because that means that that swap default isn't cutting into our IOPS budget that much uh, for the solid fire cluster. Uh, but we actually we set the the max and the burst very high because we figured that if you're actually using those swap defaults, uh, you probably want the 
Yeah. You want to do an awful lot of IO to them. Um, it's if you uh, if you your VM starts running poorly because it's uh, it's swapping memory, uh, you don't want the the disk access to be the bottleneck for it. So along those lines, uh, Andy, that 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 actually kind of you, you answered one of my questions already. Um, but but can we set different QoS policies for the other objects? Could I have the yeah. VM config have you know policy whatever, and the data the the data disks be a different policy? Absolutely, yes. So each one of the data disks can can have a different policy uh, with different QoS settings for it. Um, again, for the config, we've always set the minimum very low, and uh, it it doesn't have quite as high a max or a burst as the swap vvol, but it has a high high enough number. Uh, there really shouldn't be that much activity going to the config vivo. Uh, if you're doing a lot of stuff in the config vivo, chances are that something is really screwed up in your VM and it's logging an awful lot of stuff. That That's specifically why I asked, right? Because uh, I would imagine that everything that's not the data vivos, we want to we put a, a, a pretty minimal policy on. Right, exactly. And I mean, definitely for the the min IAMPs, we put a very low n- number on it. And as I said, that's partially just, uh, you know, the way SolidWire does QoS. If you if you set a high minimum on on your configure, your swap VVOL, uh, SolidWire is going to look at it and say, okay, this thing needs a lot of bandwidth. Let, um, that means that we might actually need to move resources elsewhere so this guy can get his minimum if he ever needs it. And... We, we just didn't want the configured swap VVOL being something that would be potentially pushing other workloads onto no, other nodes or whatever. They, they yeah. shouldn't. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense to me. So what about, uh, and well, actually, before, before I move on, did, did we cover all of the, the, the types of, of objects and, and yeah, how they yeah, integrate? Did, as, okay. as I said, we're, there's the other, yeah. which I, it, it says it's vendor-specific, and I'm guessing that maybe some, of the, some vendors have a reason for it. Uh, SolidFire saw no use for it. Um, you know, SolidFire. My guess is maybe that maybe I, other. Yeah. It, well, I I I should ask. I should let Andrew answer this because I think he actually knows. But but as I recall, I think the other data store is for stuff like SRM that still has to store files with the virtual machine, but they don't fit in the config data store. Okay, and that I was actually also going to guess there could be metadata stuff that needs to be stored with the VM. Uh, we store the metadata for the VVOLs in our database, so uh, it's just their attributes of the volume. Uh, um, if ESX wants those, that metadata, we just pull it out of our database. Sweet. So what about the snapshots? Uh, how, how do those actually work? Are, wh- what kind of cool trickery are we using on the back end to, to make that efficient and fast? Um, so there's two different types of snapshots that VVOLS uh, requires. There's um, read-only snapshots and there's read-write snapshots. The read-write snapshots are going to be what you do when you uh, make a memory-consistent uh, snapshot of a running VM. Um, so we just use our, our typical uh, snapshotting mechanism for the the read-only snapshots. Um, and it's uh, SolidFire is an entirely deduplicated system. So when you do a snapshot, you pretty much end up just um, referencing the same metadata. And then when when something changes from your read-only snapshot to the other, you, you have divergent metadata. And potentially the metadata points to different data blocks. But um, it ends up being incredibly fast because there's 
there's nothing that really needs to happen other than you just have uh, two volume names that end up pointing at the same metadata until they start diverging. Uh, takes no time at all. So the read-write snapshot is a little bit more heavyweight. Uh, we didn't actually have any concept of a read-write snapshot before we started digging into VVOL, so uh, we actually end up doing what what ends up being a clone to get a read-write snapshot. Um, and that takes a little bit longer, but again, cloning is mostly a metadata operation for us. We're, uh, remember that we're entirely deduplicated uh, across, the, across the entire cluster, so we would never make the data copy uh, for that reason. Um, so, but, so that's the way that we uh, we went about doing read-write. Um, it, it, as I said, it wasn't a concept that we actually had with Solid Fire before, so there was a little bit of grumbling, or, uh, grumbling about how we were going to do this, but we actually ended up uh, getting it to work yeah. well. Yeah, cloning cl- cloning is... Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone's ended up having to implement cloning for that, just because I, I, I don't think read-write snapshots still exist. I think that's a, a term from, from, a, from an age that, that, that has since passed. Yeah, and it's... I mean, if you went at it from the VMware perspective, you could potentially do something like a redo log that VMware did. Uh, it's It ends up being somewhat heavyweight, uh, but it's that would probably be about the only other way to go about it, where where instead of actually uh, having a clone, you you actually have your snapshot at a point in time, and then you have a, a redo log that sits on top of it to represent what's changed since then. Yeah, that's that's uh, the, the the main reason I asked Andy is because that for me that's the killer feature. You know, for the better part of two years now. Um, as, as we've been talking about VVOLs and, and educating and, and just getting people ready for it. Uh, the, 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 my answer to the elevator question of why should I care about VVOLs is snapshots. Okay. And my answer is the policy-driven uh, guaranteed QoS and, and no storage administrator involved. So those are, I think I've covered my points. Sweet. Um. So, so Andy, are there any unique capabilities that VVOLs add uh, beyond what would normally be expected? Um, so, and really what I'm referring to here is things like, or, or things that are not necessarily obvious. Um, and on the ONTAP side, so things like the protocol endpoints with the rebind operation enable us to always direct NFS traffic to the node in the cluster that owns that that particular NFS volume. So are there are there some less obvious things that we should be aware of that are important for the the VVOLS implementation? Um, well, well, we end up doing roughly the same concept where we'll actually rebind you to the proper protocol endpoint that matches where the metadata for a particular virtual volume exists. But that's no different than the way SolidFire works today, where uh, if we actually migrate a volume from one node yeah. to another, we'll actually just do an iSCSI redirect to redirect the iSCSI connection to the, the appropriate place. So um, I, I think one of the things that people don't really pay attention to is how much this should be saving you uh, in SAN bandwidth. It's uh, with everything happening uh, through very small out-of-band commands that come in through the VASA provider uh, manipulating the storage, you, you get rid of the idea that you actually need to maintain a big file system uh, and, and copy stuff around. So I'm actually guessing people will be kind of surprised at the efficiencies they see 
through their sand bandwidth. Um, getting rid of the VMFS overhead is another big piece of it. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to promise anything um, when we actually get out in the field, but it's just some of the testing we've been doing has shown that we get, uh, you know, a, a single digit percentage uh, improvement in performance without that overhead. So it's, you know, roughly like 5% per um, performance improvement by using less uh, sand bandwidth. Um, I think the other piece that the people are, it's going to take people a little while to get used to is the idea that a storage container is no longer associated with uh, a volume. It's a storage container can mean whatever you want a storage container to mean. So uh, storage containers can have hundreds or thousands of VMs in them. Uh, that's not something you could do with VMFS. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, VMFS volumes typically only had 20 to 50 uh, VMs in them were that uh, you ended up with a VMFS file system contention and when you got up to that number, you actually, the, the file system contention got to the point where you couldn't actually maintain more VMs in a VMFS file system than that. So I think just the, the concept of how storage containers are different and how they allow a VM or administrator to logically group data stores into more meaningful ways is something that isn't incredibly obvious when people start poking at b-balls. Um, I think, I, I guess the, the main thing that I, I try to drive home with v-balls is it's a change in the way that you manage your storage. It's, there's nothing special about the protocol or the way, um, the way the communication happens. It's, I mean, it's, it should be better than it was before, but the whole idea is that you manage your storage differently. It's not that, wow, this is a whizzy new protocol. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's important to point out, you know, the user experience in that, you know, SolidFire has always been a, you know, as you said, you know, it's, it's storage for people who aren't storage administrators. And the goal being it's mostly hands off. But you still have that portion of where you have to go in and you provision the volume and you map it over to your ESXi host and everybody has to go in and, and create that data store. But with VVols, you don't even have to do that, right? You, you stand up the array, you point the vSphere environment at the VASA provider and create the policies that have the different QoS settings and just start provisioning, right? There is no data store creation. There is no you know, uh, VMFS volume creation, no, none right. of that exists. It's just right. consuming storage for the virtual machines. Right. And so one of the things that, that uh, VBAL is actually defined is that you actually need to create the storage containers on the storage side. And uh, we, uh, since storage containers aren't anything else other than just tags that get associated with VVOLs, we actually add, are adding something to our uh, vSphere plugin to allow you to create storage containers through the vSphere client. So that would be the piece that, that's there now where you need to go in, you need to create a storage container, whatever the storage container means to your storage system. Yeah. And and then actually on the VMware side, you need to rescan to find that storage container. So the, the semantics on the VMware side haven't changed at all. It used to be that when you created a new VMFS file system, what UGASX host would need to go rescan to find that uh, that um, VMFS, uh, you still need to have each ESX host rescan to find the storage container. But you don't actually, there's, there's no layout necessary from the ESX side. It just discovers the storage container and says, oh, wow, a new data store, let's use it. 
Yeah, it's. I've always found it interesting how Vivals, uh, particularly the solid fire implementation of Vivals, uh, actually reduces the complexity of the infrastructure. Even though, even though there's way more stuff like happening, there's way more things in motion. There's way less that the actual virtualization administrator needs to think about. Yep. No, that's that's part of the whole goal. Um, a, a few things that we demoed at Analyst Day were um, were just trying to indicate how simple some of this stuff it, uh, was. Uh, we actually did a demo where we we went through the full process of adding a couple nodes to a system, and that was a matter of uh, of going in and and adding you know clicking in the UI to say I want to add these nodes, uh, clicking say I want to add all the drives in those nodes. Um, letting it run for about 90 seconds. And at the, at the end of that time, it we went back to vSphere and you could see that there were more protocol endpoints and you could see that the size of each storage container had increased. I mean, it, it was just, uh, it's one of those things where it took no time at all to to scale out vVols in that case. Uh, I mean, the, the other stuff that we've done is some of the automation pieces. So, uh, we actually have pushed a few things to GitHub that uh, they're very useful on SolidFire, but they're useful for anybody who has VVols. Uh, the ability to um, migrate VMs from a VMFS to a VVols data store and apply policy at the same time. Um, that's one of the things that's kind of confusing. There's no capability in the vSphere client to go in and select yeah. a bunch of different VMs and migrate them. So, yeah, it's 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 been one of my criticisms of of and, and one of the things where I think we're fighting uphill and and a little bit into a headwind with VVols with, with VMware's decision to just completely be hands off with the user experience and leaving it 100% up to the storage administrators. It's it's made for a rather fractured experience for for customers, particularly those with with heterogeneous environments. So, you know, I like how you guys have just straight up front just said, listen, we have we have a different kind of platform. We're going to build a different kind of plugin, and we're going to avoid as many of these problems as we possibly can. Yeah, I'm, that was certainly our goal. Uh, just a little bit on, on how we architected it, where uh, we went at it with the idea that this wasn't going to be a checkbox feature. This was actually going to be we, we have value to add with vVols, and we're going to add that value uh, and, and you know, do it start to finish. That's one of the reasons that we probably did, weren't one of the first ones to market with VVols. Uh, you know, it was also that Solid Fire was a growing company at that point. Um, but we decided that uh, we want to make sure that guaranteed QoS was still the number one goal for it and that we could actually apply that at the VM level and then at the virtual volume level. Um, we want to actually be fully policy driven and fully capable through our API. Everything in SolidFire is available through the API. In fact, the, the GUI that you get with SolidFire actually just lives right on top of our API. Our VASA provider actually ends up using the, the API as well. So it's everything you do to a SolidFire cluster goes through the API. Um, we want to make sure that it's scaled out. We want to make sure that it's uh, we, we weren't ending up creating VVOL islands in our cluster. Uh, we want to make sure that VVOLs were just completely... Uh, scale out, um, and we just we were very happy with the way that we'd actually done volume uh, creation, management, um, storage in the past. So we decided that we wanted to make sure that each virtual volume was 
um, a native solid fire volume. It had all of the capabilities, uh, all of the, the features of a native, native solid fire volume. Um, so one of the issues that we needed to work on when we were developing solid fire is how we go from uh, environments where you typically are going to have you know, hundreds to maybe a thousand volumes in a solid fire cluster to um, many thousands of volumes that you, you're going to end up with in a virtual volumes environment. Um, it was, you know, that was part of our development effort. Uh, we wanted to make sure that you, we didn't make people fire up another VM for the VASA provider. We wanted to make sure that we, we had a VASA provider that was part of the, built into the system and I mean, honestly, the discussions we had very early on was that having a separate VM is just plain clunky. We didn't like it a whole lot, so we, we made sure that we didn't do that. We we definitely went for uh, iSCSI only, um, attempting to apply this concept through one of our uh, uh, legacy storage gateways was going to be difficult. We why is make, that? Why is that? Yeah. Because I've always I, I've always actually kind of admired the way that the fiber channel gateways work because it's just it's literally just encapsulating the 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 fiber channel frame and just spitting it back out iSCSI. So it's just a one for one pass through. Like there's nothing yeah. happening to the data in between. Uh, it would have it would have meant that we would have needed to do all of the protocol endpoint management in the fiber channel side as well. And it, it's one of those things where if we encapsulated it, uh, encapsulated the command and attempted to do multiple protocol endpoints, it, it it became much more involved than it might have seemed on the surface. It, all of this stuff was, was not easy. Uh, it's, um, we, we did an awful lot of work to on, on both uh, working on the scale side of things and um, working on the idea that, we could actually have bindings for a volume coming through multiple protocol endpoints. That was something that we weren't ever really used to before and needed to, to have some way to manage that. Um, previously, if we had, if somebody started an ISCSI session to the wrong node, we would simply hang up on them and they would have to go back and, and reconnect to the right node. Um, we didn't have that option when we got a bind request. Uh, we, we knew that we would need to be able to handle I.O. for a single virtual volume through multiple protocol endpoints. So, Andy, I recently learned that, uh, so even without vVols, there's some, uh, I guess, uh, uh, primitive integration with the QoS functionality through storage I.O. control. Uh, so when oh, yeah. setting storage I.O. control uh, QoS policies on a virtual machine, it communicates with the solid fire system, and, and there's some functionality that's there. So... Can you expand on that a little bit? And can you also tell us what what differentiates the the SIOC implementation versus the VVOLS implementation? The integration that we've done is uh, actually if you um, if you have the vCenter plugin set up properly and you go in and, and use uh, storage I/O control to set uh, values on a particular VM, um, we will make sure that all of the VMs that are running in that VMFS can be accommodated with the settings that are available through the uh, VMFS virtual volume. Um, you know, in that way, uh, it's so if you if you have 10 VMs and each one of them have a um, you know minimum of 500 IOPS or whatever, we will just make sure that the minimum for the VMFS that they're on is 5,000 IOPS, and uh, the the maximum is 
appropriately sized to accommodate the maximum they're going to have. And, you know, if we can do that for the burst, we'll do that for the burst. But that's, there's no guarantee that, you know, if you say that every, um, VM, well, I'm, I'm not even sure, you can't set burst in virtual in SIOC, can you? I, it's been no. a while since I looked at it. I, I've spent too much time looking at the SolidFire UI, sorry. <coughs> I just always expect, expect burst to be there. So, um, but it'll it'll multiply it out, or you know, add all the VMs together and set the VMFS uh, min and max IOPS to appropriately reflect all of the VMs are in that VMFS. Uh, the the main difference with storage I/O control is storage I/O control attempts to to limit how much I/O each VM asks for in a VMFS volume. Um, the the issue that we run into there is that if you if you're running on something the, the back end can't actually supply it, what you end up doing is adding latency to all of the VMs there to do it. So our integration with, uh, with storage IO control was in an effort to prevent the situation where all of the VMs in a particular VMFS were going to ask for more than that volume was, was capable of. The other piece of it is that when we're actually the ones who know um, what capabilities we have on our system and uh, where the throughput is available, where the capacity is available. And in our cluster, we will migrate things from one node to another to make sure that any capacity or, or throughput requirements are met um, for any particular volume that's there. That's one thing that storage IO control can't do. That, it, that would almost be like some magic combination of storage IO control and uh, SDRS, uh, Storage Dynamic Resource uh, system where you could actually move things around to appropriate places as well as control the amount of IO that you got. And and still that's being done at the SX side rather than the storage side where the the limitations are understood. That is that is cool. I did not know that you guys had a bottom up system like that where where the VI administrator could just set those minimums right there in vSphere and as long as they have your VSC integration configured it would just go ahead and configure the the VMFS data stores. Yep, that's uh, that's something that's been around for I don't know uh, one of the most re one of the not too ancient uh, releases of our vCenter plugin, but it, it's definitely something that we'd like to talk about. It's uh, a cool feature. And it sounds like the disadvantage there, as you stated, is just you know there we're relying on storage I/O control, which is better than nothing, but is imperfect. And you're going to yeah. deal with some bullying before it has a chance to to knock the bully down. Whereas with VVols, we have hard QoS guarantees. Yep. Sweet. We have uh, nice logging and reports. Uh, we have some reports that are available through our UI. Uh, we have complete logs uh, for both our VASA provider and all the the components. Um, one of the things that we did was we uh, we embed the solid fire volume number into um, the um, the virtual volume ID and into the subsidiary LUN ID associated with that virtual volume, so we we can do fairly quick association if we're debugging a problem. Uh, we also embedded the entire uh, protocol endpoint ID into the IQN on each uh, protocol endpoint. So again, it should be fairly simple to just look at a protocol endpoint and say, oh, okay, that protocol endpoint is this protocol endpoint in the logs, trying, trying to make debugging this stuff easy. You know, one of the things that we just really tore our hair with when we, we started getting into doing serious VVOLS development is the number of log files and the number of different places that things were 
were ending up both on the ESX side and on our side. So once we realized that this, uh, you know, the maze of log files that we would need to look through to find an issue, we tried to simplify things on the solidified things side as much as possible. And we tried to make sure that we reported things on the solidifier side in the same format that ESX reports it. So we could do simple string matching when we were tracking down problems rather than, you know, have to assemble pieces of information from various different places. So if you actually want to chase me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Andy Banta, about as simple as you can get. Um, it's not all going to be technical content. Uh, um, if I don't offend one person a week, I'm not doing my job. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Andy Banta for joining us. As always, thanks for listening. You know, the entire show, I've just been hearing rustling papers and clicking. Um, Andy's been hard at work, I think, at the same time as doing his 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 Devol's presentation. Is, it, is this accurate? Uh, I have been at work, yes. Yes, I, I, I hear rustling papers, and, and you know, it really lends to the story. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know what papers I've been rustling, though, but okay. Somebody's been rustling something. I've been hearing something back there, but that's okay. Again.